Tom Wood Show, episode 1495. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Folks, in school, we got a sanitized, upside-down version of the history of the U.S. presidents. Well, I'm going to bring you the real history. Check it out at freehistorycourse.com. Hi, everybody. Tom Woods here. Jim Cantrell is with me today. What an interesting guy Jim Cantrell is. He was the CEO and co-founder of Vector Launch. Uh, after working at the French space agency CNES and the NASA Jet Propulsion Lab, he worked as an independent consultant to aerospace companies for 15 years and was on the founding teams of SpaceX with Elon Musk and Moon Express. And I want to talk to him about space, government, and the private sector. So, Jim, welcome to the show. Thank you, Tom. I am very interested in your background, and now then I just went to your website, and it was not at all what I was expecting it to be. So uh, we'll we'll get to your racing a little bit later, but I I want to ask first if you could give me I don't know a little bit of your background and how you came to be associated with uh, you know with of all things space. Yeah, yeah, it was uh, not really what I set out to do in life. The only thing I really ever knew for sure I wanted to do in life was race cars, but uh, back in uh, college, I bumped into a poster in the hallway at uh, Utah State, and it was a NASA-sponsored design course for Mars Rover, and that sounded a lot like cars on another planet, which sounded kind of fun. So I got involved with that. That led to a a job with NASA as a visiting fellow down at JPL in Pasadena, where they build all the outer space probes. And uh, I fell in with really the guys that built the the U.S. space program on on the deep space side. And uh, this was pre-Soviet Union fallout, and we were starting to work a little bit with the Soviets then and, and the French, uh, trying to do some international cooperation that was that was loosely tied with uh, Glasnost, that was uh, something Gorbachev was uh, promoting, this openness with the, with the United States and the West. So that led me to my first job at the French Space Agency in uh, Toulouse-France, and I was uh, I was helping design a balloon for Mars. As it turned out, that morphed from a rover to a balloon. And believe it or not, we actually built a balloon that would float on the surface of Mars, well, in the atmosphere of Mars. And uh, that was to fly in 96 on a Soviet mission. Um, The Soviet Union dissolved, as you probably know, in the early 90s. And uh, I was present for that. And uh, after that, you know, nobody was getting paid. So I headed back to the U.S. to, uh, you know, find a job. And I had a young family at the time, and so nobody would hire me because I was considered a bit of a traitor having worked with the Soviets and the French uh, without much of a permission. I just kind of did that. And in those days, I guess you'd get away with it. And um, so I ended up going back to the university I came from in, in Utah, and uh, they had a space lab. Worked there for about a month. I was anonymous until somebody from the Defense Intelligence Agency, who was a friend of my boss, found out I knew about the Soviets and Russia. And, and so I uh, went back in for about six years off and on to help stop brain drain from the former Soviet Union. There were Iranians and North Koreans trying to buy uh, Soviet uh, scientists of the era. And since nobody was getting paid, uh, as I witnessed you know, when I was in France, um, our job was to put money into the system to keep the critical talent from, from fleeing and going to the wrong people. So that was very interesting. Did that for a number of years. We converted ICBMs to satellite launchers. We we actually built joint uh, satellites with them. We helped them uh, uh, reconstitute their early warning, their missile early warning system. So the United States actually helped them build 
satellites that could watch our missiles launch. <laughs> Ironically, those were different times. And uh, so that all went along fine until about 2001 when Elon Musk called me out of the blue looking for somebody who could help him uh, buy Russian rockets. He had this notion. He was just fired from PayPal, and he had this notion to uh, spend his money on a private space mission to show that humanity could become multiplanetary. So he, um, you know, he chose me uh, because I knew about Russian rockets. And that one thing led to another. We went over, tried to buy the rockets. We designed him a Mars mission to grow a plant on the surface of Mars. Had an all-star team put together. Couldn't buy the rockets. The Russians were didn't want to deal with a late 20s uh, entrepreneur who barely looked like he was 22 and uh, didn't think he was serious. So that's when he decided to start SpaceX. So I joined him to start SpaceX, was there for another year, uh, decided that would never succeed. <laughs> so I left and I formed my own uh, consulting company, which I uh, did for until about 2016. And I got involved in a lot of space warfare activities. I got in lot, involved in a lot of um, a lot of uh, NASA missions that, uh, you know, pretty much all of the uh, outer planets missions I've had my finger in and a n- number of commercial satellites. It was the commercial stuff that kind of caught my interest. I uh, left uh, in about 2012 the industry out of disgust because the uh, it seemed like everything was slowing down once there was no longer a war to fuel these things. Innovation stopped and, and uh, the governments, as they're apt to do, uh, slowed down. And uh, so so I just got disgusted with how much taxpayer money was being wasted in that and didn't want to be part of the problem anymore. But it was uh, I went into automotive engineering, sort of pursuing my first love at that point. And then um, these commercial satellite companies started coming out. And I helped one called Skybox uh, Imaging get started. And they we sold that to Google for a half a billion dollars. And that, among a couple other companies that I that I helped get going commercially, sort of sparked my my uh, passion to go back into into space because basically I just like building things, and uh, you know these these guys were throwing money at it, and uh, I knew there was a market for it. And I sort of my libertarian philosophy was, you know, the, the private sector ought to do what the government can't and shouldn't, and uh, this was sort of a fulfillment of that. And you know, it, it solved one of the reasons why I left the industry, which was overt disgust. So I started a company called Vector in 2016. And that was a small launch company. And uh, the idea we had there was to build mass produce small launch vehicles that could compete with the large reusable ones like SpaceX. That was going all fine until about a month ago when um, our uh, one of our key investors pulled out because of some external influences to them. And um, we, uh, we were in just a, an extremely vulnerable position when they pulled out. Had it happened three days later, it would have uh, not happened. But we got caught between federal laws. The, the Warren Act, which made felons of us all if we didn't give 60 days notice to to our employees, and uh, when uh, you know when we found ourselves without the support of our primary investor, our, our bridge financing uh, we knew would get pulled because part of it was debt and part of it was uh, equity. So that that came apart, and so uh, uh, here I am. I'm trying to uh, figure out what's next, and uh, uh, I can tell you the fire is still burning in me. So. I'm not sure what it'll be next, but uh, I'll, I'll be back doing something. When you were saying, uh, I think about SpaceX, that it would never succeed, mm-hmm. do, do you mean, was it the way they were going about achieving their goal or was it the goal itself? It was all of the above. So if you go back to 2001 when we first started, um, you know, the shuttle was flying. Uh, that was all honky-dory. And, uh, 
here we are with a guy who has no experience in rockets, a lot of money and a lot of entrepreneurial experience, a very bright guy, I might add, who says he wants to build rockets. Now, we've seen this movie before in the industry. There's, As I told him, there was a long line of dead bodies that he had to walk over to get to the finish line. And uh, we used to joke, you know, how do you become a millionaire in, in the space business? You start with a billion. And yeah. uh, so, it, you know, everything was against him, right? And what what I didn't see going was that the shuttle would retire. Instead, I looked at it and I, and I knew based on his plan, I, I said, well, best I can see this being worth is $100 million. And I had 5% of the company, so $5 million, you know, in my simple math, I realize how flawed that it was now, but at the time, you know, I, I said, well, I can make $5 million on my own. And I did, I, I made a lot more than that in my consulting business over 10 years. Um, what I didn't see was how valuable these launch companies could be. I mean, they're worth 35 billion now, and I certainly didn't see the shuttle retiring. So that was, I think, really SpaceX's lucky break. They got, there's, there's two things that were really in favor of SpaceX's success. The first one was just Elon had total control of the company very bright, very determined, and he had a lot of his own money. So he could draw in people for the long haul. And in developing rockets, it's a very capital-intensive business. It's in, and we knew this. And Elon said, hey, most I'm going to put in this is $100 million. And I knew that wasn't enough. I knew he needed three, four, five hundred million. We just knew this. He didn't believe it, but we knew it. Um, but at the end of the day, and this is kind of an interesting success story, uh, when the shuttle retired, NASA had to have something to replace it. So NASA put two bets together. One was they'll do it internally. They call it the Space Launch System, SLS. And then the second one was they, they went after a commercial COTS program. So that's where they bought the services commercially from the likes of SpaceX and some others. And uh, that COTS program turned out to be wildly successful. So for about $700 million in government capital, the uh, SpaceX guys developed a Falcon 9 rocket and a Dragon capsule, which could carry people. It, it's getting to the point where they're probably going to carry people shortly. I mean, so so I guess, you know, realistically, it's probably about $2 billion. Still, compared to something at the time NASA was doing called Constellation, which they spent $50 billion and never got off the ground, you know, $1 to $2 billion was a bargain in, in the process. So none of us saw that coming. I know Elon didn't see it coming. He might say otherwise, but he didn't. And uh, that was that was the right time in the right place. And I've always said I'd rather be lucky than good. <laughs> You'd rather be lucky and good. But if you got to choose, choose luck, I guess. Well, I'm looking at the uh, the kind of work that you're interested in doing, and it seems a lot more practical than saying uh, – let's try to make mankind multi-planetary. But do you think that's a reasonable ambition at some point? Yeah, I do, actually. So this is the fascinating thing about Elon, for example, is, uh, you know, he said that to me, the very first conversation we had when I was driving in my car on the way home on a Friday afternoon, you know, multi-planetary speed. I thought the guy had lost his mind. But um, really, the only, if you think back in human history, the only way humans have become multi-continent, for example, which is sort of the nearest analogy that we can come up with. It was it was not people waiting around for the governments to lead them there. It was people just leaving. And, uh, you know, even my own ancestors came to this country surprisingly in the 1500s. I have to imagine, I don't know their story, but I have to imagine it was, they were seeking some sort of fortune <laughs> here on the shores of this, of this continent. And, uh, you know, you go back thousands of years, that's what drove 
all of our ancestors to wander, to look for better hunting grounds and so forth. So it's a natural part of our DNA to move out. And the only way it's going to happen is with people who are willing to take risks because, and that was my disgust with the way the government was doing things is they are unable to take risks. And it's not that the people in government are bad. It's that the system has evolved in such a way that taking risks is, is badly, badly punished and uh, doing nothing is horribly rewarded. And so, so the private sector that we all hopefully live in um, is, is much more black and white on that. And uh, my recent experience, for example, we made a few mistakes and bam, we got, we got nailed. And so, so the, this is the natural course of capitalism. And I think that uh, it is very realistic that, that somebody like Elon or maybe it's Bezos, maybe it's somebody else will just decide, hey, I've gathered enough money, a ridiculous amount of money in life. I want to do something that creates a legacy. And when you start to know these guys, you know that that's their motivations at a certain level. And with enough people behind them, this, these things can happen with the right risk postures and, the, and so forth. So when he says that, I, I don't think he's crazy. I've been on the record for at least 10 years saying I think he'll probably be – Elon will be, be one of the first people on, on the surface of Mars. He says he doesn't want to do it, but then I don't believe him. I guess you know about that group uh, that just declared bankruptcy, Mars One, and their idea was a one-way trip to Mars because they said the, the key problem is being able to get back. Well, if, if we take that out, then we've removed one of the key problems. How do you how do you solve that problem? Well, yeah, I mean, I knew the Mars One people, and I was involved in an American version of that effort at the same time. And, uh, you know, it's somebody's choice to die on another planet if they want. I can't think of you know, well, maybe crashing in a race car, but, uh, you know, there's, there's worse ways to die than, than dying on another planet. And that's somebody's choice, but you do eventually have to either figure out how to live there or you have to figure out how to come home. And it's, and it's an energetic argument really coming home. Um, you know, reusability on the surface, you know, that's why one of the first things when I saw Elon using re, you know, reusable rockets, people were saying, Oh, he's going to bring the cost of launch time. I said, no, this is to come home from Mars, right? And it's 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 just a block in a big block in how you how you get there. You you bring home the rockets that you went there with, and uh, you know you you pull the fuel out of the Martian atmosphere. My friend Robert Zubrin, who's the founder of the Mars Society, and uh, wrote originally the, the book The Case for Mars. He he was he was the guy that actually introduced me to Elon um, way back in the in the 2001 era. He, you know, in his book from 20 years ago, wrote that, you know, you live off the land when you go to Mars and you, you harvest the atmosphere and the soil to create fuels. And that's not a new idea. That's been around for a long time. The technology to do it is just starting to come around. And I'll give some kudos to the government on this, on the Mars 2020 rover, uh, at least the last time I looked, they, were, they had what they called a, a, an in-situ propellant experiment where they had a little experiment on the back of the rover that would try to turn the atmosphere and some soil into propellant and do it in a pilot plant kind of thing. So most of your mass to come back is, is the propellant. And, and so really it's just, it's kind of an industrial process problem and learning how to operate and live in space or live on Mars is the first part of that. All right. More with Jim Cantrell in just a minute. All right, everybody, for just a moment, I want you all to gather around, gather around, Listen to what I have to say here. Old Woods has something very important to tell you. 
And I know you're going to say, Woods, I've heard you promote Skillshare before. I already know what Skillshare is all about, but I'm not sure you really do if you haven't joined it yet and gotten your two free months. The over 24,000 classes at Skillshare teach you all kinds of things that you might want to learn just because you're curious, but also plenty of things that will give you a leg up in your career. Design, illustration, entrepreneurship, photo and film, technology, business. And for example, if I click on technology, I find courses on search engine optimization, 3D printing, how to design a mobile app, all kinds of skills that you can acquire from the comfort of your own home. If you listen to The Tom Woods Show, you're a lifelong learner, and you're going to be like a kid in a candy store with Skillshare. Well, you can join the millions of students already learning on Skillshare today with a special offer just for my listeners. Get two months of Skillshare for free. Skillshare is offering Tom Woods Show listeners two months of unlimited access to over 24,000 classes for free. To sign up, go to Skillshare.com com/woodsfree again go to skillshare.com/woodsfree to start your 2 months now that's skillshare.com/woodsfree all right now i'm i'm thinking about this i think re- the reason a lot of people just naturally assume that the arena of space really belongs to government is just the massive expenditure involved yeah so like for example i mean something like colonizing mars just seems inconceivable especially since there's no immediate profit in it so is this really a question of philanthropists or are there commercial possibilities in space? Yeah, so there are commercial possibilities in space. Um, you know, there, there's the business of space mining and, and space resources. Uh, but right now I'll point out to you that uh, we're about a half a trillion dollars a year in, in business in space. And you just don't know it. Every one of your phones has GPS systems in it. Now that's, that's turned out to be a government system, but our reliance on space assets – is, is so fundamental. If we lost them tomorrow, we'd be lost. Uh, probably, uh, you know, something you've watched on television in the last uh, last week has, has gone through space. It's been it's been broadcast through there. There's a lot of worldwide communications that rely on the space backbone. I think the future only portends a much larger commercial presence there in the trillions of dollars. And I think it's honestly the the next biggest economy to come around after the internet. It is, in my view, the next internet in, economically. So, but if you talk about, you know, sort of the farther out things like space resources and settling other planets, you know, some of that does come back to kind of philanthropy. If you look at the success of SpaceX, it really took a th- philanthropist-like approach to that because of the capital commitment. Even governments aren't good at committing that kind of capital anymore. Um, it, it's really a, a group of private people who decide to do this. There's a recent group who's decided to go put a permanent settlement on the moon. And, and I know most of them, they're highly wealthy people, made money in, in uh, technology, and they think this is just a good thing to do with their money. So, yeah, so I go back to the case of the New World Settlement. And if you look at that historically, it was uh, not really settled by governments. It was settled by individuals. Uh, you know, Christopher Columbus had this itch to explore the New World or to find the New World. And uh, he appealed to the Queen of Spain, who funded the first few trips over here. But it was Christopher Columbus and his and his uh, band of people who went with him who who actually accomplished it and took the risks. And uh, that that investment paid off handsomely for Spain. Uh, but the the society that that they grew in the New World fell victim to sort of its libertarian ideals of of settling something in the New World without really any government rule and so forth. So they. Uh, you know, fell apart due to a lot of different factors involving politics and so on, uh, and tribalism. But uh, that same model, I think, will apply to how the the uh, 
surface of Mars and, and, and the moon and perhaps beyond gets settled, it will have a, a bit of a private-public partnership at some level, but it will be largely driven by private citizens who are really looking for you know, a new place. They're, they're following their DNA, which says they want to explore. They're, they're following economic possibilities. But I think in the beginning, it, it's, it's more legacy and, uh, and, and sort of just core in our DNA. Do you describe yourself as a libertarian? Absolutely, I am. Okay, so how, if at all, does that affect the way you think about space issues and possibly even your own career trajectory? Back in uh, college, I was sort of a Reagan uh, Republican. And uh, as, as time went on, and I sort of embedded myself into, into government sort of business, which was space, I mean, space was government-dominated, I began to understand sort of the fallacy of the whole thing. And uh, it was that very experience that converted me to a, to a libertarian, frankly. Um, as, I, as I got involved more and more, I could see the waste, the, the misappropriation of uh, power, uh, those sort of things that, you know, seemed very minor on the surface. But as you begin to understand the corrosive effect on on the species and on, on our ability to, to do things that matter, you begin to develop this disgust. And I did, I developed a disgust with, particularly during my time working with the intelligence community, uh, their misuse of the, of the system of, of, of surveillance and what we all helped to build something that was to protect our nation, all of our children, our grandchildren, and keep, keep the barbarians at the gate, if you will, uh, the son of a bitches were turning it back on us. And, uh, that was my moment, you know, where I really left mentally. And, uh, when I started to see my son's friends who, uh, went off to Iraq and uh, Afghanistan and came back either, uh, mentally or physically maimed, uh, I just said that this, this thing's bankrupt and there's gotta be a better way. So that's when I discovered the libertarians. I really didn't know much about them. And, uh, it has absolutely guided my career ever since. You know, I, I don't hate the government. Uh, I just have a, an idea of they have a place in, in what we do. And that place is, is not to tell us what to do, uh, but it's, it's, it's really more of a, a referee <laughs> amongst us is how I see it. And uh, I'm, I'm a huge advocate for human liberty and individual responsibility and uh, I just believe that if uh, we, we had more of that in our society, uh, we'd have a lot less war and a lot less suffering, a lot more prosperity all over the world. Well, here's a, an area where the state and the private sector can do things together that aren't so favorable, let's say. Describe for me what exactly does Trump have in mind by the space force? And here, couldn't you easily see in the private sector, private firms thinking, well, yeah, we'll cater to that. We'll get a nice government contract out of it. And then suddenly it's not just the pure private sector anymore because the pure private sector on its own wouldn't have thought of the Space Force. Yeah. So what's your opinion on that? Yeah, if you go back to the Constitution of the United States, and, and I think our founding fathers were some of the most brilliant men to ever live, um, you know, one of the, the most legitimate uses and purposes of government was the common defense. And uh, the other one was the regulation of interstate commerce. So so in terms of the common defense, absolutely, this is what we have to band together to make sure that, you know, we as a society are able to defend ourselves from the outside. But if you look at what Trump has proposed with the Space Force, 
it's a lot different. And uh, so I'm very pro-defense. I'm, I'm very anti-war, right? So I'm anti-police, uh, policing nations and that sort of thing. But I came out against the uh, the Space Force only because, not because we're not threatened in space. We are. Trust me, we are. Um, I won't name names, but you can imagine who the countries are who have definitely already built offensive capabilities in space. And make no mistake, if we get into a shooting war with these guys, they will take our space assets out and it will hurt all of us. However, comma, why I came out against the Space Force was I saw it as more government doing something that was already done uh, primarily by the Air Force. And we didn't really need that emphasis. Now, there's a lot of body of thought that points out that the U.S. Air Force was, you know, in the same point at, at right after World War II when it was created and so forth. And I, and I hear that and I understand it. But uh, I still believe that Space Force is, is unnecessary. And it's, uh, as I've called it, it's Trump's first encounter with the uh, military uh, industrial complex and it's, and it's lobbyists. So that's one of the reasons I think that he actually got duped into this. And, uh, you know, I met the man. I, I, I like him fine, um, bigger than I ever thought he was. And uh, But, you know, I, I, I think he listens to people and takes their advice. And I think he just got bad advice on this one. What are the kinds of projects that you have worked on in most recently, in recent years in your career? And then I also want to follow that up with, how are our lives improved by the existence of a privately funded space industry? What's it doing for human welfare? Yeah, as far as what I've been involved with, you know, so let's just go back five years. Um, there's something called light sail that uh, the Planetary Society flew recently. Maybe you've seen the news of the world's first micro uh, solar sail. That represents something that the technology and the only technology I'm aware of that could take us to the stars with uh, light propulsion, so you don't have to carry along chemicals. So we we thought of this 10 years ago, uh, built it and flew it, and no, Bill Nye did not invent solar sailing. That was actually a uh, uh, brainchild of me and Lou Friedman. Um, but we did it all with private money, and it was donations from high net worth people and individuals who wrote $25 checks and so on, uh, all the way to something called OSIRIS-REx that I worked on, uh, which is going to bring back a sample of an asteroid to look at so that we can understand better the the early formation of the solar system. Sort of, I call it the God question, seeing what uh, what we're really made of. And I've uh, done a lot of other commercial things, including vector launch. Uh, the real benefit, Tom, is uh, that we don't use public monies to develop uh, things that create value. Uh, and I think that's as opposed to uh, government space, which is you use public monies to not necessarily create things of economic value, but things of perhaps scientific or moral value uh, in the space program. And I think that's very important, but it's a different importance. And uh, where we see space, it, it, it's much like the Internet, which was started by DARPA or ARPA back in the day, which is a military research branch. And uh, none of us thought you know, all the way through the 90s until mid-90s that, that you could ever make money on the Internet. The same is true of space. And like I pointed out earlier, there's a half a trillion dollars in, in money that's been exchanged over space commerce. So if you watch TV, if you have telephone calls, uh, if you ever use the Iridium telephone system, I worked on that in the last five years as well. Uh, it's a satellite company out of, out of uh, Phoenix, Arizona, that has 100 satellites up. You can talk anywhere in the world where there's there's no cell service or anything like that. So... There's just a lot of value creation when you let innovative minds 
combined with private capital to create things that nobody thinks there's value there. Again, it comes back to risk. The, the private sector is willing to take economic and personal risks that the public sector is not. Uh, one other thing I want to ask you about, there's a company called Planetary Resources, and it describes itself as the asteroid mining company. Yeah. Can you describe for a layman what the value of that is? Yeah, so if you look at the composition of asteroids, which we know, by the way, from NASA missions, <laughs> um, they, they are rich in uh, rare earth minerals. They are rich in things like palladium, uh, platinum, things like that. Uh, if you look at uh, the moon, there's something called helium-3, which only is formed in the uh, in the environment of high-energy particles bombarding uh, things on the surface of the moon, deposited by the sun. So there's a lot of unique things you can bring back from outer space. And planetary resources, I believe, went, went out of business. That, I thought, always was a bit ahead of its time. And uh, that's not all that unusual, but I don't think it speaks to the lack of viability of that industry. I just think that industry is 20 years away. Ah, okay, got it. Now, all right, one last thing. If I go to jimcantrell.com, I discover a whole different side of Jim Cantrell. It's not at all the website I'm expecting. So I have to ask you for a word about that. Yeah, so I love to race cars. I've always loved to race cars. It's been uh, the one thing I've known for sure I wanted to do in life since I was a kid. And uh, so what you see when you go to that is um, me indulging myself in that that part of my life. I had a career in it, still do to a certain extent of racing. I've uh, done some professional, some, a lot of amateur uh, races. So uh, I have something like 20 different race cars at the moment. So they turned out to actually be in a good investment. I've actually made more money on investing in vintage Italian cars than I have uh, on stock markets and startups, and things like that. So it's kind of an irony. Maybe I should have stuck with that from the beginning, but uh, I heard the call from space and uh, I, I, I spend uh I spend most of my extra energy building race cars. I, I build them myself. I have a I have a company where I've got three other guys that we do it for other clients, and uh, we we regularly race. And uh, I'm also on the board of the Space Sports Car Club of America, which is the largest uh, uh, race uh, uh, group in the United States, and has been around since after World War II. So um, I'm deeply involved in that, and it's uh, something that I live for. Well, I appreciate your time. There's so much to talk about. I had Robert Zubrin on uh, some time ago. We did talk about Mars a bit. Okay. I, I was a bit of a skeptic, but, you know, what do I know? It just seems like I would be in a world that is at war with me. This planet is at war with me. It is trying to kill me. <laughs> you know, I mean, like that, it'd be very hard to get that out of my mind. Well, that's not that much different than racing, right? You know, death is everywhere around you, but, but, but you feel the most alive when you're, when you're actually doing those sort of things. I think there's a certain part of our species that would stay here and a certain part that would leave. Yeah, yeah, that's true. It's interesting how many applicants they got on that Mars One project. It was in the hundreds of thousands. Oh, yeah. People who, who knew they were never, ever going to come home. Yeah, I wouldn't yeah. do it. But when I was young, I might have done it, you know, but I've got grandkids now. And I want to see them grow up. Yeah, sure. No, understandable. Anyway, I, I appreciate your time and, and all your good work and your knowledge uh, and, and for sharing it with us. Thanks so much. Anytime, Tom. All right, that's our episode for today. Now, there's a rumor out there that there may be a Dave Smith week coming up on the Tom Woods Show. There's a rumor. Actually, there is no rumor. There's no way there could be a rumor because only two or three people even know about the possibility right now. Dave, me, and maybe one or two other people. So there isn't really a rumor, but you feel free to start that rumor, and then you're going to find out that rumor will come true. So there is, 
at some point yet to be specified, there's going to be a Dave Smith week on the Tom Woods Show. If you're thinking, Woods, I don't know who this Dave Smith fellow is. Well, you're going to know after a week with him, aren't you? And if you don't know who he is, um, okay, I don't know how that happened, but we're going to fix that, doggone it. We are going to fix that. So that is coming up. The other thing I want to tell you is, if you don't download my free ebook, AOC is Wrong, I am going to commit an atrocity. That is absolutely going to happen. And then that atrocity will be your fault. So instead of letting that happen, why don't you just do me a little favor and go over – wait, wait hold, hold on. You're also doing yourself a favor. This is a darn good ebook, and it costs you nothing. So all you got to do is go over to aocswrong.com. Sit there and marvel for a moment at the fact that Old Woods here grabbed that domain name. Then download your ebook, go read it, and enjoy yourself. So AOCiswrong.com is your action step for today, and I'll see you tomorrow. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit TomWoods.com to subscribe to the show for free, and we'll see you next time. Like the sound of The Tom Woods Show? My audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com.